Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. What we're going to do is I'm going to play back for you just what the Premier said about this whole issue of Saskatchewan and frustration with the federal government and the nation-within-a-nation concept. We've edited out the other material from the interview that has nothing to do with this core point. And then after we air that, there's an email I want to read to you that I received from uh, one of our listeners in Alberta who sends me some uh, incredible emails on a regular basis. This guy should be writing columns for major newspapers, major media. Um, His name is Ken, and uh, he's in Drayton Valley. So I'm going to read you that email. It's not very long, but it is to the point. And then we'll open the phone lines. But what we're going to do initially is we'll open the phone lines only to Western Canada because we're talking about a prairie premier, a Western Canadian premier. So I want to hear from Western Canadians about what you think about what Premier Mo had to say. We'll open the phone lines in a few minutes. And then after we've opened the phone lines to Western Canada only, we'll open them to everyone. And what's annoyed me and frustrated me is that some individuals, some people in our industry, in the media industry, have taken it on themselves to take some real pot shots, I feel, at Premier Mo for what he said. And those pot shots quite often come from central Canada. And they're not out west. They're not in western Canada. But anyway, that's just my view. The Premier said what he had to say. He's a Premier of a Canadian province. If a Canadian province and a Premier of a province talks about a nation within a nation concept. It's not something you just shove to the side as irrelevant. And remember, we had premiers of Quebec and Ontario on a regular basis take runs at Alberta and Saskatchewan and oil production, dirty oil, whatever else they had to say. Meanwhile, the transfer payments were just fine. So here's what Premier Moe said to me a week ago, right about now, about the nation within a nation concept for the province of Saskatchewan. Listen, when you make that case to the federal government, whether it's the uh, the prime minister or his rotating energy ministers, what do you hear back? Not very much. Um, not very much at all. We, there was no consultation uh, with respect to uh, the announcement that the prime minister made at Glasgow with uh, the province of Saskatchewan. I'll speak for I, I think Premier Kenny has indicated there was no consultation with the province of Alberta. That's two of the large uh, energy producing provinces in this nation that didn't hear from the federal government on on uh, on this particular announcement maybe that's in you know due to the fact in the lead up to that announcement uh, they were out uh, campaigning uh, in the uh, in the in the recent election that we had so we we don't hear a lot uh, from the federal government and, and you know quite frankly as we move forward i i think you're going to see uh, provinces like saskatchewan and we had our convention yesterday and it have passed a motion uh, specific to this to really starting to expand our our provincial economy, um, starting to uh, look at our relationship in, with the federal government much more like Quebec, uh, for instance, has been looking at their relationship with the federal government as, as really, uh, rather than provinces within the nation of Canada, we're really starting uh, to feel that the, the differences in Saskatch- between Saskatchewan and, and where our federal government is heading is that we are actually, at this point in time, are, are more like a nation uh, within Canada. And I think Quebec is asked to be recognized like that, and I think you're going to see provinces like Saskatchewan start to start to ask those questions as well. So this is beyond an energy issue. This is a national unity issue. 
This is, you know, very, very challenging um, when you have a, a federal government that doesn't recognize the sustainability of an industry that is putting so many people to work. And I will speak uh, to Saskatchewans from Saskatchewan's perspective uh, and is and is producing a product more sustainable than anyone else in the world. In Saskatchewan, we were using enhanced oil recovery with uh, uh, putting carbon down our, our wellheads uh, right back where it came from. We're actually sequestering over half of the carbon in Canada right here in our energy industry in Saskatchewan and looking to sequester more. Um, there was a memorandum of understanding signed between a an energy company that is utilizing enhanced oil recovery and our largest refinery in the province just a few weeks ago. And so the, the companies are there on the sustainability front. They're there on the production front. And the federal government is not uh, being partner with Canadians or, or this particular industry. And it is impacting our provincial relationship with the with the federal government, and it looks like it's going to impact it uh, even more in the weeks and months ahead. I have never heard you so fed up with the federal government. I, you and I have talked many times, and I've never heard. I mean, I've heard you angry, or you know, dis- disturbed by their policies. I've never heard you this disturbed. And I just want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, like two, three minutes ago. You're thinking that Western provinces, and let's talk about yours, Saskatchewan, may be interested in pursuing a similar relationship with the federal government that Quebec is pursuing and become a nation within a nation. Yes? Absolutely. Uh, Saskatchewan is going to uh, make every attempt and every effort to start to flex our our autonomy, to flex our our provincial uh, muscles, if you will, within the nation of Canada. We still are um, obviously proud Canadians. Um, but with the decisions that this this federal government is making, namely around the energy industry, but many other industries, uh, it's being increasingly uh, challenged. Uh, we've been, it's an increasingly challenging time for us to, um, you know, unconsulted decisions for us uh, in this province to to really, uh, you know, move along in consort or in partnership uh, with the federal government. And so, uh, we're going to be looking for for every opportunity for us to carve out. Uh, our provincial autonomy, whether it be in the energy industry, whether it be in the immigration file, uh, whether it be in the, the collection of taxes. We've made some some uh, moves here just this past week to increase our, our provincial police presence to support our RS, RCMP and municipal officers that are there. And I think you're going to see, uh, you know, many more steps just like that in the weeks and months and even the years ahead, as long as this federal government continues to uh, work against uh, the province's best interests, and I would say in, in many cases against Canadians' best interests, and most particularly uh, when it comes to this most recent announcement at Glasgow. Um, and you're going to see uh, Saskatchewan most certainly defend its, uh, defend its interests. So uh, there was the part of the conversation with Premier Mo a week ago today that dealt with his nation-in-a-nation nation concept for Saskatchewan, talking about um, Saskatchewan having more responsibility for files such as immigration and uh, policing, other uh, other files, and it has created a lot of feedback, a lot of commentary. So here's uh, the email that I received from... Ken in Alberta received this morning. Good morning, Roy. Change is often the outcome of frustration. Premier Mo gave voice to being excluded from discussion, but included in providing resolution and potential restitution for that province's oil and gas industry. While all industries, this is a key sentence from Ken's email, while all industries and individuals in Canada use energy-dense fossil fuels and their derivatives, only the extraction and refining sector is tasked with curtailing emissions from all. 
Therein lies part of the accumulation of frustration expressed by Premier Mo, the straw. As in, that broke the camel's back. The support for Premier Mo from his equally frustrated rural cousins in uh, Alberta is significant and growing. Thank you for being the outlet for this conversation. Your friend Ken. Millions of people have had a dog or have a dog or have multiples of dogs. I've had one in my life um, virtually since I was, well, I was a little kid. I had a dog. But then as an adult from the time I was about 18 or 19 until, to, well, two years ago, almost always had at least one dog in my life. I love them. They're great companions. They're, they never connive. They never scheme. They don't know how to lie. They just want affection, a walk, and a goodie. And there are times and there are cases where dogs um, bite, and they quite often are provoked into biting. And there are very unfortunate situations, and uh, people get hurt badly. And so out of that has come breed-specific legislation, or BSL. And out of that has come a ban, essentially, on pit bulls in different parts of the country. The problem is, it's difficult to identify what a pit bull is. Now, legislation, and I'm just looking at it in Ontario, and you'll forgive me, please, if uh, in the rest of the country, but... I'm sure you've had uh, BSL issues in your province. Pit bulls are the, uh, the issue du jour in Ontario and have been since this legislation was passed. The current legislation was passed in 2005. Uh, just recently, Premier Ford was going to start to relax this legislation and I believe said essentially that it was going to disappear. But there was a dog that was involved in an incident in biting and had been taken away from home, I'll give you the short version, was allowed back into the home and then allegedly bit a 13-year-old um, at a martial arts studio, and the dog's owner owns the martial arts studio. And maybe you've heard the story, read the story. So what is a pit bull? Well, under the legislation, a pit bull terrier, a Staffordshire bull terrier, an American Staffordshire terrier, an American pit bull terrier, a dog that has an appearance and physical characteristics substantially similar to any of the above dog breeds. Good luck with that. Because what the people do who create the problem dogs, and generally, in my view, the problem is the owner. Bad owner, not a good situation with the dog. Um, they will breed one, what they assume to be aggressive dog, to another aggressive dog of a mixed breed. So now, how do you identify what a pit bull is? In fact, Michael Bryant, who was the attorney general in Ontario, who introduced the dog breed ban legislation in 2005, passed it. Mr. Bryant failed a test himself. He was asked to identify a pit bull from a series of photographs of dogs, and he couldn't do it. Rebecca Bradder joins me. She's um, the head of Bradder Law Corporation in Vancouver. She's an animal law specialist, and certainly British Columbia has had its issues with BSL. Rebecca, thank you very much for, for, for joining us. You can, uh, you can, yeah, you can explain this so much more eloquently and better than I. So let me step step aside and tell us what the argument is for BSL and why it's wrong. Well, let me just start out by saying uh, BSL stands for breed specific legislation. Now, I can't 
tell you on national radio what other acronym that stands for, but to give you an idea, it would be bull bleep legislation. So you can have an idea of where I'm going with this. Breed specific legislation is completely ineffective, inefficient, and in my view, and not just my view, but many others share my view as well, is cruel. What it does is that it targets specific breeds, or purportedly even just just the the definition that you read out before in Ontario, right under the Dog Liability Act and what a what a pit bull is defined as. How on earth? Are you supposed to accurately identify a dog by saying something like a pit bull, a pit bull is a pit bull terrier or a dog that looks like a pit bull? What the heck does that mean? Uh, You certainly can't get a lawyer uh, explaining what that means. You cannot get a veterinarian to accurately say what that means because it's in the eyes of the beholder. And like you said, the AG of Ontario or Mr. Bryant at the time um, failed the test. But, you know, arguably he's just quote-unquote, just an AG, right? Um, but this, that same test or similar test, I should say, was done repeatedly. Uh, there's a study where that used that test for animal control officers across the United States. They're, they're given this poster with about 100 or so uh, pictures of dogs, and they were told to pick out the pit bull on this poster. And the vast majority of them got it wrong or or at least they included dogs that they thought were pit bulls, but were in fact not pit bulls, like American Bullies, which is a story that you just told in your introduction. Right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, it's ineffective because there is just, it's very hard to actually enforce it and to properly apply it, right? Like, again, for the reason, how, how do you apply something that says, well, something that looks like something, so if I were to, because I, I lost my dogs two years ago, I lost them within three weeks of each other. Yeah, one one died of old age, and the other one was almost immediately diagnosed with skin cancer that was rampant, and so we had to have him put to sleep. So within three weeks, I lost both my dogs, which is tough because they're very much a part of your life. But mm-hmm. how are you supposed to? Um, so what would happen if I were to replace? Um, you can't replace. If I were to add a dog to my life now. Mm-hmm. And that dog had the appearance of, to someone, yep. that of, a, of a pit bull, and that someone calls animal control and says, I think the guy in that house has a pit bull. Yeah. I know. It's very sad. I mean, I would advise you to not get a dog like that if you live in Ontario because, because that dog could just arbitrarily be seized, detained, and not given back to you. The problem is that breed-specific legislation punishes good dog owners and not the bad dog owners. Right. It will just make the bad dog owners turn to another type of dog that they feel has that tough appearance and and gives them whatever they're, they're really looking for. And I cannot begin to tell you the number of times that there has been wrong identification of a dog. Here in British Columbia, there Back a few years ago, Fort St. John, around Christmas time, there was supposedly a pit bull uh, that attacked someone. Turned out to be an American bulldog in Yale Town, which is right outside of our downtown here in Vancouver. Again, it was reported that a quote-unquote pit bull killed a puppy. Well, it wasn't a pit bull. It was a massive bulldog cross. And I could go on and on. I mean, the latest example, the well-known example being out 
your way in Ontario, right, with the American bully. And American bully is not a pit bull. Really what we need, we need legislation that focuses on behavior of both people and dogs. And I think we need a holistic approach where we start with education with children in schools. So I think, yeah. Rebecca, let me get you to hold on for just a moment. And we'll come back and we'll talk about that, about the, the direction that should be taken. And I had a situation where my little guys were still alive. These were my wife's dogs. Now she passed away. They became my, I mean, they're always my dogs too. But my joys, dogs of choice, personally, were always the big dogs, like Rottweilers, Shepherds, Dobermans. I know people are saying, what's wrong with that guy? Those are the dogs I had. I know how to train them. I know how to, I know how to, how to uh, get the best out of them. And, mm-hmm. and they were always friendly. They were always great dogs. They were not aggressive. They were protective. That's their nature. But they were yep. not aggressive. You had to make the first move. And then they'd tell you, eh, maybe not the best idea. Right, so the dog's telling you, I'd stop if I were you right now. But yeah, so, so, exactly, and you have to learn to communicate and to read their behavior. Exactly. So, Rebecca, if you have a situation where you do have a dog that, for one reason or another, uh, is deemed to be more aggressive than the dog should be, I'd always tell people get a trainer, make sure that the dog is properly trained. But what do you do in a situation like that? If the if the law has to come into play, what makes sense? Well, just before I get to that, I just wanted to dispel a couple of myths sure. because not, because we're we're talking about BSL and and pit bulls so often come into this conversation. It just people still think that well, we should ban pit bulls because they're inherently aggressive or they their jaws lock, they can't even let go or or their bite pressure is so high. Let me just say a couple of things about that. It is a complete myth that pit bull jaws lock. They do not lock. They may, some of them may be determined, just like any other dog, but their jaws do not lock. In terms of bite pressure, pit bull bite pressure is not, there is absolutely, I, I shouldn't say zero, but there is very little published scientific peer-reviewed literature that shows meaningful comparison of biting power of various breeds. And the little bit of literature that exists out there, at least today, shows that German Shepherds, Rottweilers, um, and, and those two breeds have actually a higher biting pressure than pit bulls. So I just wanted to dispel that myth sure. and, and how they're fighting dogs. They're actually, while some of them may be used for fighting, they started out as nanny dogs in the UK because of their inherently gentle, friendly, um, loving nature. So well, the Staffordshire Terrier is still, is still described as the nanny dog in England. Yeah, and, and they still are. I mean, for every story that you hear out there about a quote-unquote pit bull that viciously attacked, there are numerous other ones that are living normal, happy, loving lives with their families. And they're not any different than any other dog. And I say that not just because I love animals, as I'm accused of, of, of being, but in my professional career where I defend dogs, I don't see a difference between Labradors, Golden Retrievers, German Shepherds, Pitbull, you name it. A dog is a dog, a person is a person, and it comes down to the individual dog and the person and how they live together and, and how... That's right. It's a combination, isn't it? Got, pardon me? It's a combination. It's the dog yeah, and the human, absolutely. the human and the dog. So what? So what, So in the, we have about three minutes. What in the... Uh, what, what to you, and based on your experience, makes sense as far as legislation or legislative effort may be concerned to deal with dogs that bite? 
we need a responsible pet ownership type of type of uh, legislation. So a holistic approach, starting with our kids to educate our kids how to approach dogs. For instance, not to run up to a strange dog, uh, to always ask before petting a dog, to give dogs their space. But in terms of legislation, we need legislation that targets known risk behaviors and factors. So things like making sure that dogs are uh, neutered or spayed, because we know that if dogs are not neutered or spayed, their hormones can go out of balance, and that's when, when trouble can arise. To target at-large dogs, so dogs that are running off uh, off-leash in areas that they're not supposed to. Targeting neglect, this is a big one, where people leave their dogs tied up in their yard for hours and hours and days at a time, sometimes for the lifetime of the dog. The dog gets loose, the dog becomes aggressive. So we need to target known risk factors and behaviors in order to prevent aggressive behavior, both on the part of dogs as well as people. This is a people issue just as much as it is a dog issue. Yes, it is. So, um, and and it's never a breed issue. It's never it's never a breed issue. So someone who uh, in 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 Ontario, what's the law in what's the law in British Columbia as far as BSL is concerned? What's that? What's the legislation say? The, there are various municipalities. We don't have BSL or complete BSL in British Columbia, so there's not a complete ban. But there are various municipalities that restrict certain breeds in 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 how they're allowed being kept in the community. So there are cities like. Burnaby and Richmond and a few others in British Columbia that still have BSL type of bylaws where they say if you have a pit bull or a dog who looks like a pit bull, that dog always has to be muzzled, leashed. There are certain property requirements that a person has to abide by. Hmm. But right now, Ontario is the only province in all of Canada that has an absolute ban on pit bull dogs or dogs that appear like pit bulls. And the good news is that... um, um, here, at least in, in various parts across Canada, the municipalities that have BSL type of bylaws are repealing them because they see and they've experienced how inefficient right. and ineffective it is to yeah. have them. Yeah. So I'm hopeful Ontario will do the same and come to its senses. Yeah, I hope so too. But, you know, we live in a country where first-degree murderers are released or convicted murderers yeah. are released <laughs> only to kill again. Uh, yeah, but, but, but let's ban the dogs. Let's, let's ban the dogs. By all means, let's ban the dogs. Kyle Rittenhouse uh, is 18 years of age. He uh, killed two people, wounded another in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year, last summer, and uh, unrest in that city. And he's on trial for homicide, five felonies. He testified uh, in his own defense earlier in the week and became extremely emotional. And the case uh, really relates to his actions uh, after the protests to uh, the police shooting of Jacob Blake. You may recall that story in August of last year. And uh, reports are that uh, the case will test the distinction between self-defense and what amounts to vigilante killing. Professor Jane Kirtley joins us on The Roy Green Show, Silha Professor of Media Ethics and Law. She's the director of the Silha Center for the Study of Media Ethics and the Law at the University of Minnesota, and she's very good to us with her time. Jane, thank you very much for uh, for taking the time. What strikes you about this this trial of Kyle Rittenhouse? Well, I think, uh, it, you, you know, you've put your finger on what is the essential question here, which is what constitutes self-defense. 
And as your listeners probably know, we have another case going on uh, in another state right now um, involving the so-called vigilantes who um, shot and killed Arnold Arbery. So in a very real way, I think these two cases are becoming symbolic of, of this central question, which is, what degree of protection do people enjoy uh, when they claim that they were uh, shooting others in self-defense? So the uh, the Rittenhouse uh, case, I'll ask you to put on your, your lawyer's hat. Um, what is the defense suggesting um, is his, his argument? What's his argument? Well, essentially his argument is that um, he went to Kenosha from his home in Illinois, for the purposes of protecting uh, businesses and others uh, in Kenosha during the riots that you mentioned. Um, He wasn't asked to do that, but uh, he did go, and he has testified that he had gauze and other medical equipment and that his intention really was to provide protection and aid. Um, But, uh, you know, regardless of what that intention was, what happened was that he ended up as you said, killing two people, wounding a third, and shooting at and missing another individual. And uh, so he's, he's got quite an array of, of potential offenses here, including uh, at the very kind of bottom of the list, uh, a misdemeanor charge of illegally possessing the gun, which he had no legal right to have in Wisconsin. So there's a whole panoply of charges here. Um, Illinois, or, I'm sorry, Wisconsin um, refers uh, first-degree intentional homicide is what in most other states we would call first-degree murder, so that's the most serious charge and carries the potential of uh, life imprisonment. Uh, the other charges um, you know, would be lesser, and as in most states, you can have lesser-included offenses, so that's the maximum that he could get. Um, obviously, there are a lot f- uh, lower uh, penalties that could be exacted if he's found guilty at all. He uh, had quite an emotional outburst earlier this week in the trial. Is that likely, considering he's 18 years of age, is that likely to serve him as far as a jury is concerned or or not so much? What are your thoughts? Well, hard to predict. I I think, you know, Wisconsin, uh, this part of Wisconsin in which he, you know, is being tried is a fairly conservative part of that state. I, you know, personally, I think that this kind of emotional outburst is something that I find problematic to watch. I compared it when I was talking about it with some other friends to um, now Justice Brett Kavanaugh when he was going through his confirmation hearings in the Supreme Court. I I mean, I just find it um, surprising. But there are certainly jury watchers who say that there will be people on the jury who will find that very sympathetic, whether it was a genuine emotional outburst. Because as you said, I mean, he's, he's young. He was 17 when this all happened, and he's only 18 now. Whether it was genuine or whether it was staged, I mean, I guess the jury is going to have to decide that. What happens now going forward with the remainder of, uh, of, of the trial, Jane? What do you expect? What's going to happen? What do you expect may happen well, what's going to happen is, is somewhat up in the air because on Friday the judge uh, raised the possibility of some additional charges uh, being brought, which are all lesser offenses, of course, um, and has suggested that this might raise the risk that he would be convicted of one of them but would be more likely to be convicted on a lesser charge. That's all going to be uh, resolved and is probably in the process of being resolved now before the uh, 
case resumes on Monday, there will be closing statements by both sides, and of course the judge will have to instruct the jury, and then they'll go into deliberations. So, you know, nobody knows how long this is going to take. Our experience here in Minnesota with the Derek Chauvin trial is that the jury, you know, doesn't necessarily take very long, but they're completely different cases, so I can't really predict how long they, they will deliberate. And one other thing, we have a pool of 18 jurors who have been attending the trial. Twelve of their names will be drawn from uh, uh, basically a pot, and those will be the people that will actually deliberate uh, on, on the case. Uh, the, the issue of self-defense, the, uh, the right to protect yourself, I thought that was fairly cut and dried in the United States, that it had been tested many times in court. Uh, is, is it still an open-ended question at times? Well, it, it is in large part because we have had a variety of new, uh, relatively new uh, statutes enacted in the last 10 15 years or so. They're also known as stand-your-ground laws, and, and they include this notion that you don't have a duty to retreat, which is what I learned in law school many years ago, that, that you know you couldn't just stand there. You had to make a good-faith effort, unless you were in your home, um, to, to try to escape rather than to actually shoot at somebody. But these new laws uh, give a lot more protection to those who engage in that kind of conduct. And, of course, it's being uh, framed as, as, frankly, a, a law and order. Uh, kind of an initiative. And that's why I think both of these cases are going to take on this really broader uh, context because uh, they really raise the central question of, of you know, how much, how much of a right does somebody have to shoot and kill someone else when perhaps they, they, they would have had an opportunity to retreat if they'd chosen to do so. Their response to Mr. Moe's statement on this program nationally over the last week has been considerable, and the response today when we talked about it is still ongoing, and the majority of people are siding with Scott Moe. It is time for a Beauties and the Beast segment with Catherine Swift at Working Canadians, former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation for Independent Business, or Independent, was it for or of? Of. Of. Thank, thank you. <laughs> Grammar, grammar has never been one of my great strengths. Um, Linda Leatherdale, <laughs> Vice President, thinking, what did he just say? Uh, Linda Leatherdale, Vice President of Cambria, Canada, one of this country's best known and respected financial writers. How are you, Linda? I'm great, Roy. Thanks for those kind words. Well, it's true. It's, tr it's true. I'm going to come to you for advice. <laughs> Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament who had the distinct pleasure of sitting beside Mr. Trudeau for years. How'd that go? As you may expect, as one could expect. How are you, Michelle? I'm just fine, Roy. It's great to have you here. Uh, this is not on our... What we do when... I want to let everybody know. What we do before we air these segments, we just send each other a couple of emails... And we have a rough outline of what we're going to talk about, but nobody's ever holding anybody to that outline. It's just, it's there for, to give us something to work from. May I just get your thoughts first about COP26? And we've talked a lot about energy, energy crisis, the situation that they're dealing with in Europe. On the, we talked about it a lot yesterday on this program. We talked about it last weekend with the guest from England and uh, with our good friend Dan McTagg and Bjorn Lomborg was on the on the program yesterday. So what is your sense, uh, Catherine, let me start with you. What's your sense of what's come out of COP? 
Well, we have the, um, the to, there's been 26 of these, hence the name COP26, and it's the highest emitting get-together of all of the governments, and Canada had the biggest delegation by far, little old Canada had the largest delegation, therefore the highest emitting uh, delegation, the highest polluting delegation. So uh, despite the fact that none of the goals that have been set by any of these uh, climate conferences to date have ever been achieved and likely ever will be achieved, um, we, we do have a record of sorts, which is that Canada was a very high polluter, uh, the highest polluter during this, and that we basically have politicians that are total hypocrites. So uh, despite all of the, and, and at one point I understand they had some power issues and they had to fire up some coal fired <laughs> some coal fired facilities so that they could have electricity i mean really how can people ever believe these total lying hypocrites what they should have done is said here's some candles off you go <laughs> Or so, do do without your phones and computers <laughs> and everything else bjorn lomborg said and he subscribes to agw anthropogenic global warming. He says the way to go is not to spend trillions upon trillions and trillions of dollars to achieve essentially nothing. But it is wise to do proper R&D research and development of renewable energy projects and do it properly and do it with forethought and at the same time spend the requisite money to bring the poor out of poverty, feed those who need food, and do it in a in tandem. I'm paraphrasing Dr. Lomborg, but he's very kind and comes on this program on a regular basis. Linda, what's what's your take of coming out of COP26? Well, what a wise thing he just said. And you know, Catherine's so right. 26, and where are we at? And come on, guys. Um, there's greener, but then there's ways of doing it better. And she just said it. They had to fire up some coal. Well, we can make coal cleaner. There's so many other options out there. And then when I look at the average little consumer today, inflation is going through the roof. And one of the driving forces is the price of gasoline. And we all have to heat our homes this winter. You know, we have cut off our nose to spite our face. We are not doing it right. And so I agree with Catherine. They're hypocrites. But there's got to be a better way. And let's just not forget how important we are we are oil rich in this country. We should be doing it better. Well, we talked um, about we talked about uh, last weekend and a bit earlier today that England is looking to Qatar signed an agreement I think with Qatar now that they will be the source of last resource for natural gas for for the UK for for England. Well, uh, wouldn't Canada be an appropriate place to do that? Weren't we just a few years ago, Michelle? deemed to be um, an energy exporter to the world. We we do know that according to the, and I keep saying this, but it's true, the International Energy Agency says that even if we do, if we fulfill all the objectives, stated and written objectives to, 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 to tackle climate change, in 2060, we'll still be using 100 million barrels a day oil globally. Aren't we, shouldn't we be the nation of source and resource? Absolutely, Roy, but as far as I was concerned, COP26 was nothing more than a global dog and pony show. Uh, 
to make everybody try to feel good like they're doing something. But the reality is, in Canada, we've been sliding backwards. And I think a part of this is, and to Mr. Scott Moe's point, there's been zero consultation with the provinces who absolutely oversee the natural resources. And maybe we should start consulting instead of having these arbitrary um, uh, dictatorial sessions by the prime minister who really doesn't mean it. Well, you said to us, it was either the last weekend or the weekend before, you were on with uh, your former caucus colleague, Dan McTagg, and I asked you whether in your experience with Mr. Trudeau, whether he'd actually ever really shown an intense interest in climate issues, and you said what? The only issue that the Prime Minister's ever shown any interest in, in my experience, has been himself. <laughs> well, well. And you know, the pronouncements that he made about capping emissions in the oil and gas sector in Canada, which is hugely devastating, and I heard your interview with Scott Moe, and I, I have a lot of respect for Scott Moe, I think he's doing a great job, but you know, he's devastating a big chunk of the country. And by the way, in elsewhere in Canada, don't think you're not going to be affected by this. But that pronouncement that Trudeau made had zero planning involved. Zero. He made that big sweeping announcement when people said, what do you mean? How are you going to accomplish that? Not a clue. And Guibo, our great new environment minister, was exactly the same. So they're making these ridiculous sweeping announcements with zero uh, study, zero analysis, uh, no as detail. to how they're going to be achieved, which, mind you, is kind of normal for this liberal government, sadly. But I wonder when Canadians are going to get sick of a government that just looks to hurt Canadians to get some kind of international acclaim. So here's what we're... And we have to take a break here, but when we come back, we'll talk about something else. But one thing, your party, Catherine, the Conservative Party... <laughs> Don't call it my party. Your party. <laughs> your party. Because you have a card that says it's your party. It's your party, and you'll cry if you want to. Your your party is so skilled at self destruction. They are the they're the prototypical uh, political reality for a new television version of Mission Impossible. It's going to self destruct in five seconds. Well. <laughs> I can't disagree, Roy. I know. I know you can't. That's why I said it. It's the first time I've heard you speechless. <laughs> There's something I need to do, I want to do right now, because I don't want to run out of time to do this. Thursday was Remembrance Day. And uh, I received, and thank you, Michelle, I received from you a video of a, a slideshow of a particular and special uh, dedication that you and your husband, George, um, arranged. And it had to do with 21-year-old Demetrios de Plaros, who is a Canadian soldier in Afghanistan, who was killed in Afghanistan. And at the time of his death, Michelle had been in disfavor with the leadership of the Liberal Party because Michelle would not stop posting her expenses online, her MP expenses. The party didn't want her to do that. Offered her a bribe in the form of a big office. She said no. So they took away her rights, among other things, to speak in Parliament. And, Michelle, you were not allowed to acknowledge in Parliament the death of your 21-year-old 
constituent and member of the Canadian Armed Forces, were you? Well, that's right. Um, it was actually uh, the uh, Demetrius's father approached our office, and he had wanted specifically a tree planted at his son's public school where he remembered him as he was an excellent student and he was his happiest, and he wanted something in the community uh, to memorialize his son. So uh, it wasn't just my husband and myself. Uh, We actually uh, funded it, but my whole office got behind it, and it was an incredible show of support. And uh, the family, I believe, really appreciated it because it was personalized to where he lived and where he was happy. So I can add to this, because I had a conversation with Mr. Jerry DePlaris, Demetrius's dad. We talked this morning. And he wants you to know how thankful he is and how much he appreciates what you and your husband and your office did for his son. It would be too emotional for him to come on the air and talk. He told me that. But he wanted me to share with you that he, how much he appreciates what you and George and your office did for him and his family. He feels he's been treated with great respect, great respect by you, your office, your husband, also by the police, and been treated with great respect by members of the military who served with his son. But he specifically wants you to know how much he appreciates what you and your husband did 13 years after his son's death. I wanted to share that with you. Good on you, Michelle. Yeah, yeah. good on you. Good on For you. Sure. I don't cry easily, but you're making me cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. You, you don't last as a liberal without having the ability not to cry. You weren't allowed to acknowledge his no. death in Parliament. They wouldn't let you do that. I wanted That's... to give a member statement. Yeah. So I wanted you to know that I had an opportunity to speak with uh, oh. Demetrius's dad, and he wants you to know that. Thank you, Roy. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. So we have two and a half minutes left. I, will, I, have, I had to make sure that we have the time to talk about this. Uh, we have two and a half minutes left. Let's go back to the issues we were talking about, and let's pick on Catherine's gang, the Conservative Party <laughs> of Canada. <laughs> what is wrong? What is wrong with these guys and gals? I don't know. Party? What is I, wrong? I wish I could them? tell you, but they better they better smarten up soon uh, uh, because the, the the divisiveness, the stupidity of this separate uh, caucus that is is talking about vaccine issues and and they don't realize the uh, damage they're doing to the party. Um, you know, Aaron, Aaron O'Toole, I know Aaron and I like Aaron, but he has really got to step up to the plate big time and, and show some courage because we have a government right now and the NDP are going to go right along with them that are hurting this country badly. We need a, we desperately need an opposition. So time to step up to the plate, Aaron. Yeah. And I mean, I'm probably going to cost me any interviews with him going forward, but his office occasionally contacts me about interviews and then somehow it takes forever to get an answer and they want certain things talked about and I say that's not I mean I'll talk about that but I'm not going to talk only about that 
and then the interviews just increasingly aren't happening. So that's okay. I mean, we don't need uh, we don't need a political party leader to to make the show work, but it really is a bit of a gong show. The Conservative Party of Canada right now is a bit of a gong show. Absolutely. And what I dare say this, Roy, uh, Aaron O'Toole, you might be the tool of the day. Um, There is an identity crisis uh, going on in the Conservative Party. And they really, Catherine's so right, they have to put their act together because we do need strong opposition. And there's a lot of key issues as Parliament resumes on November 22nd. So come on, guys. Come on. Michelle, let me just ask you in the 45 seconds we have left on the segment, what role can a strong opposition party play in, in Parliament? I think an essential role, and but I've never been about opposition for the sake of opposition. I think good ideas come from all parties. I've always believed that. But, uh, you know, I have to agree. Mr. O'Toole, he's, I, I've never met him, but it, he seems like a very nice man. But he hasn't shown the leadership qualities that we need at this juncture in this country. Yeah, you can be a nice man and feed the squirrels, but you won't get much done. <laughs> right thank you for listening to today's podcast if you want to hear more subscribe to the roy green show on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher or wherever you find your favorites and if you like what you hear leave us a review and tell a friend i'm roy green have a great weekend